Our brains are so flawed. Sometimes you really just need a mind bath. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Casey Schwartz, a graduate of Brown University with a master's degree in psychodynamic neuroscience from University College London. Casey has worked as a staff writer at Newsweek and The Daily Beast, where she covered neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry. Her writing has also appeared in The New York Times and The New York Sun. Her first book is called In the Minefields, Exploring the New Science of Neuropsychoanalysis. I've got great news. Many of you have asked whether you could get a t-shirt with the logo on it, and the answer is finally yes. So if you're looking for some clothing to help you feed your good wolf on the go, check out our website, oneufeed.net slash shirt. They were handmade here in Columbus with a special edition line drawing of the One You Feed Wolf logo. The shirts are very comfortable. I spent a lot of time being very picky on exactly what they felt like to get the type of shirt that I wanted. So you can visit oneyoufeed.net slash shirt to order one. And if you're interested, I would recommend doing it soon because we only had a certain number made in this first round and they seem to be going pretty quickly. So I hope you enjoy. And here's the interview with Casey Schwartz. Hi, Casey. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Ash. Thank you for taking the time to come on. I read your new book, uh, In the Minefields, Exploring the New Science of Neuropsychoanalysis, which is a fascinating title. And we will get into all the things in that book here in a minute. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, Grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. I like that parable a lot. I've heard it before. 
Um, and to me, it, it's its meaning is sort of, it seems clear, which is that what you pay attention to and what you engage in is what becomes real. Yeah. And I apply it to the writing process because this was my first book and it was a very panicky, uncertain experience trying to figure out how to write it. Um, and there were so many days where the issue of sort of self-doubt could have become the thing that I gave into. Mm-hmm. Um but um, it was a, it was a constant battle not to. I think that's a great way to frame it because I think any of us in, involved in trying to do something outside of the ordinary, self doubt is is a very frequent companion. How is it that you deal with self doubt? What what were the things that you did that made you able to keep working? I mean, they varied widely. Um, sometimes it was um, quitting work ridiculously early and slipping out and going to the movies. Um, Sometimes it was meeting my brother and watching a baseball game. I mean, sometimes it was going for a run. Um, I mean, most of these, most of these tactics involved sort of um, being with, with someone, my someone in my life who was sort of sympathetic and could um, talk to me and let me basically just air my fears. Um, And then, you know, the next day you sort of wake up and you get back to it. Yep, that idea of involving other people is such a can be such a valuable one, and and it's something that I think a lot of us tend to at least I am 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 um, prone to overlook. I'll, I'll figure this. You know, I'll deal with it myself, or you know, I'll just I'll, oh, totally. I'll sort it out in my head. Exactly, and 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 we're not all. I mean, I happen to have a wonderful brother who who was so good at um, just sort of reminding me how to how to keep keep focus. Um, but I do think going to the movies is a wonderful trick as well. That's what Don Draper always suggested on Mad Men, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> he was on to something. Yep, yep. Well, just yeah, changing the mental channel for a while can be really helpful. Uh, I find sometimes when I'm stuck in that negative thinking, there's no sort of just like, well, I'll just not, I'll think positive, and it just is more powerful than the negative. Sometimes it's just like, I've got to change the channel from thinking completely. Our brains are so flawed. <laughs> Sometimes you really, <laughs> you just, you, you really just need a mind bath. Uh, that's a great word, yeah. So what led you to write this book? What was your path to um, becoming interested in this and then writing the book? It is not a subject I, I would have ever predicted. I would sort of begin my, my career as a writer um, with. But um, in my early 20s, I went off to graduate school thinking that I was going to be a psychologist. I had this idea um, that that's sort of, it was a momentary idea that that's what I wanted to do. And I, I picked um, a very unusual program um, for training. It was brand new. This particular course had never existed before. It was two years long. First year was in London at the Anna Freud Center. Um, in North London, which was, it was sort of the, like, it was this throwback bastion of, of, of classical psychoanalytic thinking actually funded, founded by, um, by Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter in the 1940s. Um, and, um, just full of these, these old school ideas about the mind, ideas like the ego, the id, repression, the unconscious. Um, I mean, it really, I was there in 2006, but I often had this like utterly beguiling feeling like it could be any year, it could be 1950. Mm-hmm. And, but what, what made this program unusual was that the second year of it, we, there were only nine of us in it, and the nine of us returned to the United States 
to study the brain at Yale. And so the premise of this thing was, can something come of studying these two very, very dissimilar disciplines kind of side by side? So it was in the course of this schooling that, you know, A, I realized, okay, wow, there's an incredible culture clash going on here between how we think about the mind, how we think about the brain, what, what we think is going to get us insight. Um, and that's interesting. And B, um, it was because I was in, in this program that I wound up meeting um, the man who would become actually my main character, a man named Mark Solm. Yeah, in the book, I thought you, you phrased up sort of what you were after in, in um, a sentence which you said, with their starkly different goals, methods, and cultures, psychoanalysis and neuroscience can appear to be two different species, mutually alienated, as if preoccupied with two altogether different pursuits. And so what you were trying to do, what this program did, and what Mark Solms did was to try and find a way to integrate these two very different approaches to the mind slash the brain, right? You use those terms differently depending on which discipline you're coming from. Right, exactly. And and the differences extend so, so far. I mean, it's impossible to um, overstate this because it's not only that, you know, psychoanalysis is all about, well, it's all about subjectivity. It's all about subjective experience. How does it feel mm-hmm. to, to be any particular person? I mean, what, what, what does a person go in and discuss to their psychoanalyst? It's, it's, what they're talking about is what, what it feels like to be, to be them. Mm-hmm. But neuroscience, the perspective is so different. It's, it's like looking at a person from the outside in, like um, what can we see when we look at your brain in an fMRI machine? Yep. And, um, you know, so those basic building blocks and ingredients are in and of themselves radically different. But also I would say, and what I've observed is that there's such a difference in culture and in personality type between the two disciplines. Like who wants to become a psychoanalyst is a very, very different temperament than who wants to become a neuroscientist. So when you imagine how could a conversation begin in a meaningful way between these two fields, you know, you, you, it gives you pause. You're not quite sure. Right. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting was, and I thought about as I was reading the book, was psychoanalysis on one hand you know, on one end of the spectrum, neuroscience on the far other end of the spectrum, where are the places in between that, that exist? Um, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, some things that seem to me to, to be a, a little bit more in the middle of those two. Is that a, is that a reasonable way to think about those things? Yes. I mean, and you bring up cognitive behavioral therapy. I don't really get into that in the book, but um, I think that's a good example because it's, always been a version of psychotherapy that looks towards scientific evidence, um, kind of more, um, more regularly or sort of it shapes itself with proof of what works and what doesn't. Um, and I think, you know, that that's not traditionally been how psychoanalysis functions. So yeah, and that probably is in between. Thanks. And now back to the interview with Casey Schwartz. Psychoanalysis has always struck me as much more you're going into the past, you're unearthing the past, you're dealing with things like the unconscious and... Um, 
Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cognitive behavioral therapy, you're working much more with the thoughts that you have right now. What can I, you know, I've got a thought, how can I work with it more skillfully? And do you think that cognitive behavioral therapy lends itself better to being studied scientifically? Or do you think that psychoanalysis does too, but the culture of it and the people that are in it are the reason that there's not more of that? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of those things. But that said, actually, there's been this this um, huge growth in, in the amount of evidence that now exists showing that psychoanalysis is effective. Um, but that started sort of late. That only started about 15 years ago or so. Um, yet there is now actually a significant amount of research sh- showing, yes, this thing works. Yeah, one of the things that I thought was interesting, and I didn't see it in the book, but I did read it in an article you wrote for um, a major publication, I can't remember which, where you were talking about some people who are starting to be able to explore what parts of the brain um, come to life when transference kicks in. Oh, yeah. So this is a piece I did um, over the summer for the New York Times Magazine. Um, And um, it it is related to the book, but... um, I focus on um, a man that I don't really explore in the book. His name is Andrew Gerber, very interesting psychiatrist who um, basically is taking this very old school Freudian idea, transference. I mean, this is an idea Freud came up with in about 1900 when he realized, um, you know what? We bring our histories into every encounter that we have in the present, every relationship we have in the present, Um, every new person we meet in the present is informed by our past experience. Mm -hmm. And that actually was one of, some people think that's the boldest and most original idea he came up with um, of all. And so Andrew Gerber thought, um, wouldn't it be interesting to figure out um, where in the brain these functions that go into transference 
actually occur. So he, um, he's been working on that for almost a decade now, um, kind of on the side, sticking, sticking people into an fMRI machine, giving them all these tasks that supposedly activate their transference patterns and trying to see, well, can you pinpoint it to here? Can you pinpoint it to there? One of the other ideas that Freud is well known for is this idea of the unconscious. Um, and it's interesting that there's a lot of science starting to show up these days that seems to be talking about the unconscious, although um, I don't think it's really referred to that way. But, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's Blink or, or uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, those books are talking about how there's something happening underneath our conscious brain that is driving what we're doing. How do those sort of newer ideas tie in at all with what the, the unconscious idea was in psychoanalysis? It's 100% true. The unconscious is suddenly everywhere. And what's so funny is that um, until about 1980, that, that wasn't the case at all. Until about 1980, science kind of didn't believe in the unconscious. The unconscious was sort of a fairy tale um, that was, you know, not really believable, not really provable. It was seen as sort of not true. Um, it was seen as, you know, very much in the purview of the Freudians. Mm-hmm. Um, but now um, it is completely axiomatic throughout neuroscience that most of what happens in our brains happens outside of our awareness. Um, so this is this is very Gladwellian, you know, um, that. Um, we have these sort of processes of ways of assessing the world around us we're not even aware of. Um, yet, you know, we sort of we sort of arrive at conclusions all the time without exactly knowing why. Um, and by the way, Eric, thank God, because we'd be so overwhelmed by the <laughs> details of our lives if we had to be aware of, of every single one. Right. Um, but the the big difference between between that version of the unconscious and what Freud meant by the unconscious is, is basically repression. You know, Freud thought that things are unconscious because they're unbearable. Um, and um, neuroscience kind of hasn't touched that yet. It hasn't quite gotten into why certain things would be outside of awareness and why certain things would be in awareness. One of the questions that I've had as I've had people on, and we've talked about this idea of there being this unconscious that's happening. And, and you know, the studies, you know, flip open any science magazine, you're going to read something about how some part of your brain is doing something that you don't know. How do you work with that? Is there anything you can do with that sort of information? And does psychoanalysis provide a method of using that unconscious differently? Is that part of what it can bring to the table? Psychoanalysis has never like sort of lent itself to these easy kind of takeaways um, mm-hmm. and these kind of news you can use um, <laughs> sound bites. I mean, in fact, that's its whole culture is sort of slow, slow, slow insight, mm-hmm. slow, gradual process. So it's very much it sort of cuts against our moment of, you know, um, help me by 5 p.m. Um, but that said, I think the please. very fact of sorry? 3 p.m., please. 5 p.m. is too late. I know, actually, 5 p.m. is way too late. <laughs> but I think the very fact of being aware of how much exactly is outside of our awareness um, is in and of itself helpful. And so psychoanalysis, as you mentioned, is a, is a much longer process. You, you talk about the book. You end the book really in sort of a place of complete uncertainty. And you, you, know, you thought back to the beginning of the book and about that sort of 
the word, the phrase you used was sacred unknowability, um, and that you were perfectly able to end this book with uncertainty because you believe in uncertainty. And it seems like that is much more the realm of psychoanalysis, that there is a, um, that there's a mystery here. Yes. I mean, I think what actually one of the impetuses for, for doing this book, um, was when I was studying neuroscience at Yale, um, I was sort of secretly horrified by um, what this field wanted to do, which was sort of to reduce us down to these very, very um, generic little like schemas and these generic um, formulas for explaining all of human behavior, mm-hmm. these grand, grand questions like creativity and how we make decisions and how we, and how we fall in love and with whom and, you know, neuroscience purported to be trying to answer these questions and with very simplified, in my mind, overly simplified um, answers. Mm-hmm. And I secretly rooted against that ever happening um, because um, to me that, that shrinks us all down to a very unappealingly small size. Um, and so in that spirit, um, I embarked on, on this book, which... Um, as you know, kind of follows this one character in, in particular, Mark Solms, um, who I think, you know, who advocates for uniting the two fields and, and never losing sight of, of individual complexity, very much like Oliver Sacks before him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I got that ending, when I got the idea for that ending, um, it just felt so right because it brought me back to the, 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 the root feeling that had inspired the book to begin with years before. That idea of the, the reductionism of, of neuroscience reminds me of there's, you know, there's starting to be more conversation around from a nutritional perspective, like all these studies that boil down, you know, this thing to isolated vitamin C, um, you know, you extract this thing out of the whole and then you study just that little thing, but you sort of lose the whole picture that like, you know, that an apple is good for us in ways that go far beyond the, the, the individual vitamins that you extract from it. Yeah, no, I think that's really true. I think, um, it's very hard to keep the whole picture in mind and it's sort of, it's funny that, you know, that whole holistic thing is sort of not that American or something. Um, I've noticed that and other doctors have sort of said that to me too. Um, but yeah, I think that is true. I wonder why. I, mean, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's, we, we, we all have a fantasy of, oh, there will be, you know, a trick, a silver bullet, a simple fix. Um, yep. we'd like, we'd like there to be, but there never really is. Yep. It's that magical thinking idea that that's one of the things this show sort of goes on and on about is that that doesn't really exist and that chasing that is usually a um, poor idea because it's likely to distract you from things that might actually be useful. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Right, right, right. And we're, and we're, we're capable of so much more than, than one tiny solution. One of the other things that you wrote about recently, which I thought was interesting, was the scientist uh, Joseph Ledoux. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And he's widely known as the person who came up with the popularizing the amygdala as sort of the point of, of flight or fight um, of that fear response. And right. um, I mean, and that you talk about another, you know, the amygdala might be the most popular uh, neuroscience thing to write about. I mean, I, you know, it's come up on this show three or four times. And, and, and so, but he is now saying, hey, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. No, Joe Ledoux, he's such a great character in, in the field of neuroscience. Um, so I'd always wanted to write about him. And when his new book, Anxious, came out in July, I just thought, okay, this is, this is, this is the perfect opportunity because his, his new argument um, is really interesting, which is that, you know, um, for years there's been this kind of assumption that because the amygdala, which is one of the brain's sort of most central fear threat detectors. Mm-hmm. It, it does, it detects threats, it detects danger, and helps to kick off the brain's defense responses. Um, but, be, but there's been this sort of extrapolation from that um, and, and this assumption that the amygdala is also what makes us feel afraid. Um, so Joe is, is arguing now that um, that's, that's not true, that the actual feeling of fear, which is, um, he, he says, well, the whole question of animal consciousness is, is separate than this, but he says that, um, the, the idea that, that the amygdala is responsible for the feeling of fear is not, is not right. And that it actually takes all kinds of, um, parts of the brain working, working in concert to produce that feeling, that conscious feeling. And so the, the amygdala detects the threat, but then there are other parts of the brain that take that information and interpret it. Yeah, and so the, the 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 you know he's he's sort of caused a stir among among many people for what he writes about this question of can we study animals and hope to understand human emotion? Mm-hmm. Um, because you know when Joe himself studies this all this stuff in rats and these big white rats at NYU, um, and he basically is now arguing that he doesn't know whether animals have consciousness, but science cannot prove that they do, and therefore, it's really not useful to act like they do. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If we want to understand human emotions, we need more than the animal research. Right. Well, there's this assumption that, you know, you hear people talk about the different layers of the brain. There's the lizard brain. And then as if these are just, you know, stacked on top of each other and there's been no change between what, that part of my brain and a lizard's brain, um, which strikes me as being probably some truth to it, but probably a vast oversimplification. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say there is a part of me that 
like that it does resonate that that I would have a little lizard brain in my brain, but exactly. Yeah, it's just a, it's an it's an oversimplification. One of the things that you spent a lot of time on in the book was that some of the places that this um, new neuropsychoanalysis was happening was in people who had brain damage and using that as an entry point to sort of see how these two things could mix. And you tell a story about a man who, um, he's a, a, a phasic. Did I say that right? Yeah. He has aphasia where he sort of lost the ability to form meaningful sentences to, to communicate with the outside world. And yet he enters into psychoanalysis. Can you share that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So Mark Psalms, um, my protagonist started, um, a group in New York in about 2000 of psychoanalysts who um, are dedicated to psychoanalyzing brain damaged patients. And this is, this is so unorthodox because um, traditionally we think of brain damaged patients as, as not really needing or even as not being qualified to receive psychological intervention. Mm-hmm. Well, so Psalm says that's absurd. No one could possibly need it more. And he recruited this group, um, and um, they all have such interesting cases. I sat in on this group, as I describe in the book, for about two years, listening to them um, on a month-to-month basis report on their patients' progress. And one of the members of this group was was an absolutely wonderful man named, named David Silvers, who had taken on this unbelievably difficult task in... Um, psychoanalyzing a young patient named Harry who'd had a stroke very young in his late thirties and basically lost the ability to speak. Um, I mean, he had a scattering of words like um, he could sort of sketch a couple things on paper, but he really couldn't get meaning out. He had aphasia. Um, yet they spent seven years um, in this, in this treatment together. And um it gave this patient such a profound lifeline um, that that he had someone who was willing to pay such close attention and make such a heroic effort to understand his experience. Yeah, I was struck by that. It's a pretty profound and and moving thing. And I was struck by what you just said a minute ago, where you know where Mark Solm said there might not be anybody who's more in need of it. Like once I read that, I was like, how obvious is that? We take these people that have had these. <laughs> horrible things happen to them who are confused and don't know how to relate and, and just sort of go, well, let's see if we can fix it. But if we can't fix it, good luck. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it was, I was actually, so I, last weekend I was in Boulder, Colorado, um, talking about this exact thing, um, in this part of the book. And this woman in the audience raised her hand and said, you know, four years ago, I had a brain tumor. They removed it, and I became aphasic. I lost the ability to speak. And then she said, I was so devastated that none of the neurologists who treated me cared at all about what the actual experience was like. They never asked me a single thing about what I was going through. Right. And then she said that it was the first time that she had spoken aloud in public in four years. Wow. Yeah. Well, that must be um, a good feeling for you to know that those people, you know, that, that the, the book is reaching some of those people. Yeah, it is. Very much so. So one of the other areas that you talk about, it's not in the book, um, but I thought it was really interesting, back to Gerber. 
you know, he's done a lot of study on psychoanalysis and, and using neuroscience, but he said he saw a pattern in the patients who progressed the most. They didn't move in a linear way from worse to better, um, from neurotic to not neurotic. However, rather they were sort of in the middle of their treatment, they would go through a period of intense flux and then sort of come out the other side and improve. Can you share a little bit about that and what he learned there? Yeah, I loved I loved when um when Gerber told me about this observation of his because it it's so interesting that you know he he this was his um this was his dissertation. He did this when he was in psychoanalytic training in his 20s in actually at the same place that I went to at the Anna Freud Center. And he was trying to figure out, okay, why do people get better in psychoanalysis? Like what actually accounts for this? And so he had these psychoanalysts um, fill out weekly, detailed, detailed reports on everything going on with their patients, every aspect of behavior, relationship, everything. Um, And what he finally noticed, it took him like nine years to finish. But the patients who really made progress in psychoanalysis went through this middle period of being basically a total mess. Um, they, their lives would get messy. They, they, they would become erratic. They would become slightly, even in some cases, unhinged. Um, and and he, he thought of this as their, their molecules. You sort of throw them up in the air and they sort of dance around and rearrange themselves. And that has to happen before the real improvement can set in. Yeah, that's a really interesting concept. That idea that healing doesn't progress linearly is certainly an experience of mine. That's interesting. I mean, even just if you look at like, you know, dealing with grief, it's like you feel better for a few days. Like, oh, I finally accepted this. And you wake up the next day and you just feel as bad as you ever felt. And you're like, wait, what's going on? I thought this is supposed to be progressively getting better. And I've just noticed that doesn't seem to be the pattern that it's better. It gets a little bit worse. The other thing that I've noticed, um, is a tendency to swing to, you know, to be at one extreme, swing over to the other extreme for a period of time, and then over uh, an extended period of time, finally find the middle between those two things. I think that's, there's a huge amount of truth. I think that's, that is what Gerber would say he, he had observed. Yep. Those, those kinds of patterns, exactly. Yep. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. The book is really fascinating, and I'm, I'm interested to see. It, it really sounds like a field that is very much in its infancy, and so it's really interesting to see where that will go and how these two different approaches to trying to make people mentally better can work together and, and inform each other. Oh, the, the fact that it's inventing itself is what drew, it, drew me to it. Um, And Eric, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, Casey. Thank you, Eric. Okay, bye. Bye. You can learn more about Casey Schwartz and this podcast at onenewfeed.net slash Casey.